Hello, and welcome to episode 99. I'm Anthony Maliki in U.S. Editor of Waters, and as always, I'm joined by James Rundle, our news editor. Hi. And as a special guest treat over from London, we have our editor-in-chief, Victor Anderson. Hi. That was episode 99 of the Waters Wavelength podcast, right? Waters Wavelength podcast. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Episode Just 9. Joking. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Shut up, James. <laughs> Whatever. Um, so, on Monday... We hosted uh, our annual Waters USA conference. It's our biggest event of the year, um, which was followed by the American Financial Technology Awards. All the winners can be found um, on our website um, this week. So this podcast will go on live Friday. So all the write-ups should be live by um, Friday by the time you're listening to this. So you can read about the individual winners, see why they won, and all that. And also this week and into next week, we will be... What? The write-ups weren't, but the... The, the BST uh, the, Awards write-ups are going to be up. The BST Award write-ups <laughs> will be live this week. Yeah, never mind. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but the AFTA's winners are already on the website. The AFTA's so winners, you can see. You can yeah. read about them in January. Right. Okay. See how much smoother this runs with the editor-in-chief here? You know? <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> so, making a good impression on the old boss. Um, so, but this week, uh, we will be having write-ups um, from various panels and speakers... Um, on the website between, uh, so Wei Shen Wang uh, is still over from Hong Kong, uh, Amelia Dave was there, James, myself, and Victor, so we will be having stories going up over the next two weeks, but we thought today, you know, let's just discuss maybe some of the major themes from the events, and to me, one of the biggest themes that was really strung out throughout the whole day was this idea of fintechs. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a couple uh, panel discussions on it, uh, a speaker from TIA. Um, who you know talked about innovation and trying to you know a large institution take advantage of a fintech mindset mm. um, in a large institution. Um, so to me, and then we had also a showcase of four um, startups that pitched or had eight minutes to pitch their best ideas to uh, see who would win. Mm. Um, that so was there anything that you kind of felt, Victor? Is there anything that you kind of took away from that fintech discussion that we had all day? Yeah, um, well, I, I've got a yeah, number of thoughts on that. And that is, I think the first one is that, um, you know, you ask, you know, a dozen people in the industry what constitutes a fintech firm, and you're probably going to get a dozen different answers, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So the way I see it is that you look at, let's say, you know, some of the really well-established technology vendors in our industry, let's say Charles River, Advent, now obviously it's part of SS&C, they're fintech firms. Mm-hmm. You know, and they've been around for yonks, haven't they? They've been yeah. around for, for decades. Yeah. Um, so this whole notion that suddenly, f- you know, fintechs or fintech firms are a new thing is, is in my, to my mind, is nonsense. Yeah, it's funny, I was talking to uh, Brian Collins from Torstone Technologies yeah. um, at Cybos, and he said the same thing. They launched seven years ago, I think, and he was like, we were just before fintech became cool. What is yeah. called to be fintech? We've always kind of been fintech. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fintech yeah, was yeah, just yeah. financial technology. It was just shortened financial technology. It had nothing to do with startups per se. Right. It could be a startup, but yeah. it was just to talk about vendors specific to the financial technology yeah. sector. Right. I, th- I think um, I think a lot of people use the term fintech and actually mean startups or a or a, or a, Today, a yeah. new or recently launched uh, technology firm. That's how I, um, I personally use it. It's yeah. Describe the new firms. That yeah. So it's a so it's a bit of a misnomer, really. But I, I kind of okay. So so for the purposes of the of this discussion, let's talk about fintech firms and and by that um, 
kind of reference um, startups. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's really interesting. Um, there's this, I, as I mentioned at the event, the startup scene in Germany is absolutely nuts. It's it's incredible. Um, the technologists there are amazing, and um, and not only that. So you've got these a lot of really bright young kids who have studied maths or or finance or whatever, and then have gone into you know established these these fintech firms, these mm-hmm. these startups, so with a really good understanding of the type of problems they're looking to solve in the industry. And if you go back to the whole idea of the lean startup with Eric Ries, you know, one of, one, one of the tenets of, of, of Ries's um, lean startup um, mentality, methodology, whatever you want to call it, is you have to solve a problem for somebody, okay? Mm. And if you're not solving a problem, you haven't got a business. Mm. And um, so the one thing that I came away with um, from Germany was that there are a lot of really smart people who've identified specific areas, very narrow kind of niche um, areas that they're looking to, and, and problems that they're looking to solve in those particular areas. I think it's, it's very clear when people don't have that domain knowledge as yeah. well. And I said that in my feature this month um, talks about that a little bit about how finance, generally the successful startups, people who spend a bit of time as a portfolio manager or as an analyst or as a middle or back office uh, mm. personnel because they understand that when you file your, your FMs and confirms, it's this big step process or you know when you're clearing and settling the reconciliations process is a nightmare, corporate mm. actions is manual. Um, I think it's very easy to tell which firms are fintech and in fact they're very focused on financial technology and the specific problems with this industry and those that are just tech. Yeah. So we had that I think with the startup showcase with a couple of firms. Great products, but um, didn't perhaps laser in on the specific applications to the industry. Yeah. I think that that's the fintechs are. I love the idea that that we did. You know, so again, it was four firms they had eight minutes to present their argument yeah. to vote, and then everybody in the audience Elevate, used pitches. innovation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they had everybody in the audience then could vote. Um, the winner uh, was Finborn Technology. Um, Dermot Dermot Shah. Short. 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 Yeah. He's from. He came in from. Uh, their company is based in London. Yes. Yeah. He's ex UBS though. Ex UBS. He was ex head of uh, UBS Delta, which okay. which then was uh, spun off and sold to Stepro. That's right. Yeah. His and team is all ex Morgan Stanley, ex JP Morgan, ex very very heavy industry yeah. pedigree. Sure. So you know. And he he had a great pitch. I ended up voting for uh, Deep Current, um, which uh, just I thought that their their product was. Well, the fellows with the. Um, where they can scan a 100-page document in five seconds. Or yeah, something. exactly. See, that's what I'm talking about. I thought during his pitch it was really great. He never mentioned things like the um, the paper crisis earlier this year and when variation margin came in for unclear derivatives. Well, you can see that he started his company in another in another sector, and yeah. now he saw, I guess, that maybe spoke with people like, oh, no, we could definitely use this in finance. Yeah. I think that that's one thing that these startups should do more of is... I can go up there and say, listen, go to my website, you'll see everything that you mm. need. But in this eight minutes, I'm going to give you a case study. And here's a specific. I can't tell you the name of the bank, but we went into the bank and we, here's mm. what we did, X, Y, Z, here's the result. Mm. And I think those are yeah. probably more effective. Yeah, but, no, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with you. That That's a, a classic case of, again, going back to re, um, to Eric Ries. Um, that's a classic case of what is known as a pivot. So basically you have the product looking at one particular sector and then you realize, actually, hold on, we're ignoring another another market and that's actually a better fit for the product and so you pivot you don't kill the product you just pivot and you focus and and basically you 
you take what the market is telling you. In other words, we like your product, but actually it's not really for us, but maybe you should look somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've, that's where you find your niche. It's just I mean, a, As an example, I've got friends who work in virtual reality and their background is in video game design. Yeah. Um, so they were looking at that for ages and ages until they realized that it had very specific applications in the healthcare industry, um, mm. specifically for schizophrenia patients, building simulated environments and to walk around and that kind of thing. It's an incredible example of a pivot from one yeah. industry to an entirely different one. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the other thing though that, um, you know, I, I, I could talk about startups all day because it's something I find really interesting. But um, I think one of the big challenges that a lot of startups, um, I think they shy away from addressing because it's difficult is um, building the product is easy. Finding your target market is dead easy. Mm-hmm. Selling your product and making money, enough money to sustain the business, is really difficult. And that's why 90% of all startups fail. Right. They die what, in what is known as the valley of death. Within two years, 90% of all startups are dead. And so, um, so coming up with a minimum viable product, identifying a challenge or a problem that you're going to solve for, for your market, then, and that's the kind of easy thing, easy part, because the techies can sit behind a screen and they can, and they can, you know, design and engineer a product, but actually getting those same people to go out and then going to sell it when they'd, pro- they'd rather sit behind a screen is very very difficult. And so I think um, the big challenge for let's talk a little bit about um, the people who are at Borders USA, um, big capital markets firms. The big challenge for them in um, partnering with a startup is the last thing you want to do is partner with a startup and then the th- thing goes belly up, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they just haven't got their their f- uh, finances right or whatever. Um, in which case, ch- chances are if the bank has really invested, it might actually kind That's of bail them out. Over, yeah. But um, the the big challenge is 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 establishing which startups have got a f- are fundamentally sound from a business perspective. You know, have they got a decent business plan? Are they getting, again, according to Eric Reese, are they getting out of the office? In other words, are they actually going to talk to their clients? Don't get, you know, don't send them emails. Don't get on the telephone. Go and speak to them. Yeah. Ask them what they want. Are we doing it correctly? Yeah. How can we improve? And you come back and they iterate or whatever, improve the product, and then go back to them. And that's what startups are particularly bad at because, you know, a lot of startups are techies and they would rather look at computer screens all day. Sure. And um, then maybe what's the challenge then for big firms that are trying to, rather than just take in these, they're trying to kind of create these innovative innovation centers within their own firms. Yeah. What, how does that kind of differ, do you think, from that kind of startup? Well, it's a different I, think, I think one step back from that, and this is, a, this is a global phenomenon with all large organizations, irrespective of the, of the vertical that they're in. So it could be pharmaceuticals or, um, I don't know, fast-moving consumer goods or whatever, and also finance. And that is you've got these organizations that are well-established, they've got large headcount, they have a way that they've always done stuff. And how do you introduce um, nimbleness and flexibility and an open-mindedness to adopt new ways of addressing old problems? And it sounds quite trivial, but it's really, really difficult. Mm. Um, And so... And this is something, so it's a kind of a cultural thing. In fact, I wrote about this um, f- for my Ed's letter for the December issue. And it's all good and well saying we've got a head of innovation and you know, you've got all these guys in the, in the computer lab who churning out all this new code and these new products and stuff. 
that, that's only kind of only half the problem. The other half is getting people to use those products to improve the, 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 the workflows, the functionality, the services, et cetera, et cetera, within the organization. Yep. And getting people who've done it in a particular way for most of their careers and suddenly change and use technology in order to make their lives better and more efficient is really difficult. Yeah. You can roll out the technology, but getting people to actually adopt it and use it and do so willingly is a massive challenge. So it's not you know, it's not a US thing or a UK or German or whatever. It's a global thing. Yeah. yeah. And FinTech's also the other you know theme was just it's so much more if you're at a bank than just saying, all right, this floor we're gonna we're gonna take down all the walls. You can write anywhere on the wall. You can wear some jeans and t shirt if you want to come into work. It's much more than just because that's, I think, where, you know, you, you hear some of these, you know, hoary old banks, you know, talking about, oh, well, we're trying to establish a new culture. Everybody in the banks wearing suit and tie, but we'll have this one floor where, okay, maybe they're a little bit more lax and they can, it's more than just trying to create a feel. Sure, a feel yeah. does help. I can understand yeah. that. Yeah. But it's window dressing. That was the yeah. yeah. The other thing, actually, that, um, you know, Eric Ries uh, teaches us with, with Lean is that, um, the, typically, the the, the the techies are the guys that uh, come to work in jeans and trainers and hoodies, right? Mm-hmm. And the journals. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and but um, that's it's it's a kind of it, it, that's a bit misleading because you know often people will assume that that person is kind of just a bit kind of easy come easy go laissez faire. I'll just kind of do stuff on my own and. Forget about the time frames and forget about the money, and I'll just you know create a you know write a few lines of code or whatever and make this little app or whatever the case may be. It, it's not like that at all. Really good innovation um, happens around um, disciplined timelines. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the guys who uh, who spoke to us, um, Blanford. Right, TIA. right. N- n- Scott? Scott, 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 right. Scott Blanford from TIA, right? Yep. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that, that he said was, um, you know, if you give people um, infinite amounts of time and money, the chance of them actually coming back with you, back to you with a solution is almost zero yeah. because they'll just keep spending time and money because there's no kind of deadline, there's no framework. Yeah. And really good innovation happens in a, in a, in a well-defined, well-understood, well accepted and adopted framework. What he said specifically was that constraints are the best friend that you can have for right. innovation. Constraints aren't bad. Constraints have to be accepted and embraced. Totally. Constraints focus you, the mind. Yeah. Is they this get, any they, kind of enormous revelation though? I mean, like we learn this in school. We have to hand our homework in by a certain date, otherwise we're never going to do it. So I don't see it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but again, that's a, a kind of a... We are... Everywhere. <laughs> I, think, I think humans by nature are procrastinators. You give someone two weeks to do something, they won't hand it in on the first day. They'll hand it in on the 14th well, day. For an industry example, look at Mifid 2, we'll give them an extra year and everyone's yeah. going, great, eight months off, lovely. Yeah, exactly. Then, so, you know, so they just push everything, don't they? Yeah. And yeah, so that's a kind of a human, um, a, a kind of a, 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 tra- a global trait, really. Mm. And and so the worst thing you can do is say, you know what, let's, you know, this is going to take nine months, but we'll let's, let's do it over a year. Because it gives us a little bit of more flexibility stuff. No, you say, let's do it over three weeks or a month. And every day we will have a meeting, a little stand-up, and we will find out exactly where we are, and we will plot our course, and we will stay on course, and we will hit that deadline. And it's not about 
you know, so so much of a product development, it, it's not about delivering the all singing, all dancing platform that does everything for everybody. Sure. It's about getting to the point where you are releasing bits of functionality that people can use on the day that that stuff is released. And if there are problems and they just feed back to you and you tweak it kind of overnight or you tweak it in your next sprint and you keep going forward and you, and you develop iteratively because people haven't got like two years to wait for some waterfall project okay. to, and also the other really big thing is that the market has moved on in two years time, but this market moves so quickly. You spend two years developing software for a particular problem. Two years time, that problem's gone. Yeah. Well, and you at, just waste wasted time. Look at all money. those guys who built complex event processing engines when Apama was still sort of top of the pack, and everyone was trying to challenge them. And then people spent years developing complex systems and that yeah. kind of thing. And then suddenly AI became a huge thing and right. annihilated a lot of the theory behind it, or blockchain became a thing and annihilated a lot of the thing behind it. Sort of, you know, as you say, quantum computing will eventually come along and destroy everything. Quantum right? computing, right. and then the really smart startups were the ones who master what I call the Scotty School of Engineering, where you know the captain asks you how long it's going to take, and they say six hours, and the captain goes, "Fine, you've got two hours." In reality, yeah. it's only ever going to take you an hour in the first place to do it. You know? yeah. So, yeah, constraints, focus of mind, and are important. Totally. Yeah. yeah, and then um, the other thing maybe that would, would be important to talk about from today is because um, this will lead into a new awards program that we're going to be having uh, next year, yeah. uh, Women um, in Technology. So the title is, I think, Women in Technology and Data. Yeah, correct. I'll we'll be launching that soon. Yeah. And uh, the awards will be held in March in London. March the 9th, yeah. March 9th in London. And we had a... Um, the beginning part, uh, women in technology and data breakfast uh, briefing kind mm. of thing before the event. Mm. Uh, it seemed to go well. Obviously, three men sitting here talking about it. But, uh, well, I was about to crack a joke about it, but I thought, actually, we've got more female staff on water than we do male staff. Yes, yeah. about and it. we have a lot of yeah, yeah. writers, reporters. I think that's something that we've always hopefully strived for. Is, you know, yeah. um, and our the leader of, so our publisher is a female. Yeah. and um, uh, I'm male. Yes, no, I know that. Yes, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so she's there Wednesday. You know what was really interesting was that at, at that um, at that uh, woman in what is it? Woman in finance, woman in technology. Um, what breakfast. was the breakfast? Woman the breakfast in technology and data. What actually? Uh, I would say, I would say a quarter of attendees were male. Yeah. Um, so it we weren't basic, We weren't saying. You know, if you're a man, you are disqualified. You can't come and listen to no, what the women not. talk about. Yeah, this is about talking about uh, about acknowledging excellence within your organisations and how best to go about ensuring that women get get equal opportunities. They are they are more um, basically just trying to get the balance more right than it has been mm-hmm. in our industry. Because let's be absolutely honest, it's still dominated by white males. Yeah, right? yeah, of course, and. Um, and this is not about tokenism. It's not about saying, you know, if you wear a dress, then you've got an extra, you've got a better opportunity because this, we're pushing you. This is about saying um, there have been injustices, perhaps, or a kind of there's been a, a slant in the past, and all we want to do is kind of just train the spotlight on that and say best person for the job. Well, and and because yeah. we were talking about this earlier today, but so next year there's going to be a pay gap review, correct? In in uh, England, where correct. if you have X amount of employees, yes. So that there's going to be a big analysis, I guess, going into yes. this, and firms that are of a certain size are going to have to start to show their pay gaps that exist yep. at their firms. So there's obviously yeah. a sea any, change in that regard. Any organization over 250 employees, um, they have to, by law, 
um, publish the salaries of male and female counterparts to just to provide greater transparency into okay. if you are let's say you are you you you've got two editors or publishers mm-hmm. they really ought to be paid exactly the same yeah. because it's the same role right in theory. Uh, unless someone's been there for a long yeah, yeah. So a woman, I guess the thing is, a woman can make more than a man. You know, she has more experience, she's a better job, fair yeah. enough. You yeah. know, um, so yeah, I guess it, yeah. there's a difference. The, there. The, uh, look, uh, of course, gonna, it's going to be difficult to make apples, um, uh, uh, apples versus apples comparisons. But the idea is to to at least try to, yeah. to kind of, um, to, to, Correct Level the imbalance the because at the moment I think the, the the pay gap discrepancy is like fifteen or eighteen percent or whatever. Yeah, so awful, if yeah. you're a woman, all things being equal, you'll be paid eighty percent less. And it's just like how can that be? Well, one of right. my former employers who shall remain nameless. We had uh, journalists who were very well respected in their fields, male and female, been there for exactly the same amount of time. A woman was paid thirty percent less than the yeah. male was for no yeah. reason other than the fact that maybe she was a woman. I don't know. But, mm-hmm. you know. So we have that coming up um, for March, um, and so we had a lot of speakers at the event, obviously, mm. um, and so that was another key theme. Anything else that you thought was... Well, yeah, actually, um, we, we had a, um, in London, um, on, I want to say November the 15th, I think it was, we had um, the Waters Technology Innovation Summit, Sure. where we talked, uh, ironically, actually, we talked a lot about what was discussed at Waters USA, we we spoke about um, a month ago. Yeah. And um, we had Ellie Hardwick, who is um, the head of... Um, I'm not sure at Deutsche Bank, but I don't know. She, she is, a, yeah, sorry, she is global head of innovation at Deutsche Bank. Okay. Um, and she was absolutely brilliant. And just talking about the challenges and the opportunities and how they go about partnering with with startups, with fintech firms, mm-hmm. how they, you know, the various models. So, do you keep the organisation at arm's length and just deal with them on a kind of a vendor end user relationship, or do you, if they're doing some really really good stuff, you want to you want to buy them, don't you? Because mm-hmm. you don't want you don't want anybody else using that technology, sure. right? So, if it provides you with a competitive advantage, that technology, then you're probably going to want to, you know, keep it in house. Yeah. So there are various kind of um, models, and she went into that. She was she was absolutely outstanding. Um, and it's the the thing that I find interesting is that there are so many, not so much asset management firms because they, they they just haven't really got the scale. But a lot of the banks have got innovation titles now, sure. where people are charged specifically with trying to adopt. Um, Trying to either develop or else adopt innovation um, and get that to permeate the throughout like the organization. BNY Mellon, BNY Mellon, I know has the the Jersey City Innovation Center, so right. a whole office in Jersey City dedicated to innovation. Uh, JP Morgan has in residence program, a little bit of a different, where they bring in companies and try and uh, feed them along. Yeah. Um, Morgan Stanley has uh, uh, something similar, more on the in a, an innovation lab that they've Barclays created. Yeah. Barclays, Accelerator, yeah. Yeah. Tech Stars as well in yeah. uh, in, in the UK. Yeah. yeah, I'll be interested to see what happens when the next 2008 happens, because we're, we're building a bubble right here in the market, so that's going to eventually pop. I, I don't think that you can, it's right now a rational exuberance that exists right now as the Dow keeps on shooting up. Eventually, there's going to be a comeuppance. Will these innovation centers 
survive those kind of purges that we see uh, yeah. when, when those it comes down burn. to losing hundreds of millions of dollars I think they'll be the first things to be cut yeah. personally but uh, that's just me but so, yeah. people disagree um, Sarah Biller disagreed with because I brought that up on stage Sarah Biller Matt Joseph you know who've been doing this for a while uh, mm. especially Sarah Biller um, you know they disagree with that assessment because but, it's their job yeah exactly <laughs> so, yeah. you know I think journalists will be in business forever you know it's like yeah yeah I, yeah, I, I, it, it's certainly interesting, um, but then it's a little bit like the whole notion of 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 cutting close to the bone and just be careful because you could class, you could cut too close to the bone, right? right? Sure. Yeah. And um, and so what you don't want to do is stifle innovation. Um, innovation is a is a really important part of our industry right now, and and the other interesting thing is that um, you know our bread and butter is is you know we focus on. Um, technology that allows the capital markets to work, um, and so we kind of we understand innovation and we we understand the important role it plays within capital markets firms. But fairly recently, it's almost like we've reached a tipping point where everybody has kind of just cottoned on to the fact that if you if no matter what you want to do to further the the business, you have to base it on technology. There is no way that technology will not play a part, and so. Um, you might want to, so you might want to cut back on those projects that are kind of a little bit maybe, you know, out in the weeds and 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 perhaps, yeah. you know, they might have a questionable ROI or whatever for the business. Those might get culled first, but the ones that um, where there, there is a, a kind of you've taken a bit of time to set up a an innovation program and it's drip feeding bits of functionality into the organisation. I can't see those going away. No, I, maybe the skunk works and the uh, the yeah. labs that are doing crazy things with AI for no ROI might. But I mean, it's, uh, Ruth McQuitty from Deutsche Bank, uh, she's a technology strategist in their labs and innovation arm, said the same thing that you were saying um, on the keynote panel. And she just said, you know, technology used to be a call centre and now it's not just core to the organisation, it's core to their future state. Now, yeah. it's, you know, it's not normal technology isn't the tool for the job, technology is the job. And yeah. so if you know, we're moving forward. Absolutely. So, but... As much as people say that too, cool. So you, now that technology is part of the business, it's like we're considered part of front end, okay? So IT budgets are going to go up like a big time, right? Yeah. In 2019, right? Your IT budget. The front office now, right? So no, no, no. <laughs> so, yeah. They'll remain flat, you know. It's like yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I think though that do more um, with less. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there the are two points I want to make. The one is that um, is that there is this notion that banks are becoming technology firms that are also just offering financial services to, I think to their that's clients. bollocks. Like, excuse me. But that's like, okay. um, You know, I was, we had a discussion a few weeks ago, didn't we, about mm. banks and technology firms. And I'm sorry. If your core business is providing technology and developing technology, yes, you're a technology firm. Mm. If your core business is managing money, and that's mm. where you make the bulk of your profits, then mm. you're a money management firm. Mm. You're an investment firm. You're not a technology firm. Like, mm. you use technology extensively, but you're not a technology yeah. firm. And the um, Bill Murphy, I think, the moderator of that panel, questioned that as well. And he's like, "Guys, come on, really? Like, is that what we are?" Mm. Um, At the end of the day, it's about profit. Well, um, yeah, yeah, yeah I, and I think that that you know that's a that's a valid argument. Um, but at the same time, as well, um, you know, we had someone at the innovation summit uh, from Goldman Sachs talking, um, and basically a quarter of the entire workforce are engineers. Sure, thirty-two thousand staff members, eight thousand engineers within Goldman Sachs. 
I, I agree with you. But they're not is, a technology firm. But what drives 80% of their profits? You know, it's yeah. not the sale of, of Ready. It's, yeah. uh, it's the income from the fixed income desk. It's, right. uh, you know, their equity desk. And the right. Desk. And, and that's a good point. Yeah. Um, the other point that I wanted to make um, uh, about, um, about fintech firms and, um, and startups is that, um, you know, in the event that there is a slowdown, um, I'm not. I'm not convinced. I th- look, I think. I think um, Bitcoin is a massive bubble. I mean, I, I just get really worried when you just look yeah. at the hype around Bitcoin at the moment. And um, I would say limited before, but now you've got people doing futures. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. Just, it's going to spread. It's going to contaminate the system. Yeah, sort of, you know. Yeah, I, I, I really worry about Bitcoin. But um, so, I think um, with respect to innovation, I think organisations have got to be very, very careful about. You know, a knee-jerk reaction saying, oh, you know, we are, um, you know, we no longer, uh, the, the, the market has turned, therefore we're just going to switch off the taps and, and do no more innovation. I think that's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing as well is I think with a lot of fintech firms, what's happening is if you, if you look at the, at, the, at the IT budgets, they might not necessarily be going up, so they're kind of flat maybe, they might go up marginally between now and next year, but probably lower than the rate of inflation. But I think what, what you might have, you might see is a lot of existing relationships with technology vendors kind of watered down mm-hmm. because that's where, so I mean, can you imagine how much organizations spend on Microsoft, for example? Mm-hmm. Imagine, it's a, that's an annual license fee and it is massive, it's huge. And that's just their, you know, to run their PCs and stuff. Um, so you might have, um, less allocation for that and more allocation for technologies that are actually going to make the business run better. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you're just taking, you're kind of stealing from, well, borrowing from Peter and paying to pay Paul, right? Well, I've had multiple discussions with people about this point and actually it was brought up on, during the AI panel, the, sorry, the AI panel at Waterloo USA and they said, you know, in the early stages of emerging technology, you partner with consultants and you partner with vendors because they've got the brain power and they've got the expertise to like see you through it. But you're learning the entire time you're doing it. And the ultimate goal has to be to take that in-house eventually and sever those relationships because you have to do it internally. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. In a couple of years' time, once this beds in a little bit, you'll start to see those relationships watered down, withdrawing, yeah. money gets reallocated to other areas and that mm. kind of thing. So yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, we usually like to have a little conversation about uh, you know just this and that you know at the at the very end. I asked Victor what he wanted to talk about, and he said, uh, "Let's just do it live." <laughs> so, what, so what do you got, Vic? How, what's, uh, what's happening, man? What, what's uh, what's interesting? Like, okay, let's not talk about Brexit because I'll just lose my composure. Okay, okay. I'll lose my. You know what? Um, I mean, that is just people in the, this kind of the southeast of England, the kind of the more the so. Brexit kind of it, it split the UK massively, kind of uh, you know along um, along political two kind of, uh, not so much political, but it, um, but kind of financial as well. Um, you know, you, there, there are parts of the UK where um, what do they call it? Social mobility is really poor. In other words, if you're born into a poor household, chances are you you are always going to live in that poor household. Yeah. You might live in a household where two or three generations have never worked and stuff, and so you become kind of a little bit insular in terms of your outlook and uh, and a bit kind of xenophobic, and you want to blame 
you know, everything on somebody else and whatever and people nicking my jobs that I was never going to do anyway type thing. Right. And you voted for Brexit. And um, the thing that I find, and here we are, we're bloody talking about Brexit. I was going to say, we're doing Brexit, guys. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that I find astonishing is that it's, this, this reminds me a little bit of 2008 when, um, you know, I was here and uh, I, I was here the day when, um, when um, Lehman Brothers um, basically... Uh, no, collapsed. Uh, collapsed, yeah. I was, we had an event. Um, and it was so amazing. It phones was. Phones start ringing and everyone left, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it, everybody was just like looking around and stuff because um, I, th- I don't think we were as quite as connected as we are now. Um, I mean, we, people have mobile uh, cell phones and stuff. But, but you weren't getting the news alerts. No. It, uh, whereas, I mean, now people are just legged and just run straight out of the um, event. But I was here for that. And, and um, I remember coming into the office, I was here for the whole of the week. And they were, we, you know, CNBC and all the, you know, Bloomberg and um, C-SPAN and stuff were wheeling in all these analysts and they were saying, yeah, we know exactly what's going to happen. And they'd get rid of that analyst and another one would come in and say, oh, I know exactly that, what, what's going to happen. And they were saying exactly the opposite things. Mm-hmm. And not everybody can be right. The point is, no one had a clue what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. They, you know, the, the Bear Stearns and the... Which was the other big hedge fund group that tanked early on in the in two thousand? Yeah, AIG. You had uh, Lehman. This was Bear Stearns. There were two big hedge fund groups. Well, Bear, Bear Stearns and Merrill Lynch as well. Merrill Lynch and Merrill Lynch, I think it was. Well, anyway, anyway, and then later in the year, then then um, uh, uh, Lehman. But um, no one really kind of saw that coming, and you know, and all the analysts kind of thought, yeah, you know, we just have to look back at history and we could see exactly what's going to happen next. No one had a clue. And Brexit's exactly the same. I don't know. I, mean, I, I think we had a pretty good idea of what was going to happen, at least in the, the Remain side. <laughs> it's like, you know... Oh, like, with, with Brexit? With Brexit, I think, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but unfortunately, people were just lied to a lot of the time. Like, you talk to the guys in Cornwall and Wales who voted for uh, to leave the European Union, yeah. and, you know, because the Conservatives were going in there, and they were saying to them, we'll match your spending, whatever the EU gives you for your regional development fund, we'll match it. Yeah. As soon as it's over, they went, so you're going to match it, yeah, guys? And the Conservatives just went, Poof. No, <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a bunch of lies. But um, yeah, the the thing the thing that I find so interesting about the whole Brexit thing was, um, it was such a poorly defined kind of question, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want to leave the European Union? Yeah. Do you not want to leave? It was a kind of a binary in out thing. No one knew, no one had a clue. We all knew what kind of staying in meant because it was status quo, yeah. right? Yeah. No one has a clue. We still don't really know what leaving means. Because we haven't released the impact report. It's amazing. It, absolutely. This and even those impact reports, those, that, that's just thumbsuck stuff. It's like, yeah, you know, nothing, it's yeah. just people, you know, just supposing. But the fact that the government won't release it is worrying in and of itself. Yeah, but I, I had this worrying. exact conversation actually with my, my father all people the way the other day. And the question should have been, shall we negotiate an exit for, the Europe, for Britain from the European Union which will then be put to a vote by the people for a second time, for yeah. a binding referendum. Right. You know, it shouldn't have been, should we leave the European Union? That's ridiculous. I mean, yeah. like, should we, see, should we try I mean, to figure out how badly we'd be uh, you know, tied up and, and left for dead first, and then we'll see how we go. But like, you know, <laughs> and also, the other, the other premise as well that I just find astonishing with, this, uh, with the referendum is, um, you know, we have a democratically elected um, a parliament, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Those are people who we elect to make decisions on our behalf. Why the hell were they not involved in... Well, and complex they make the decisions. That's why you never have exactly. a proposition, you know, to decide something so important. Like in the United States, we have propositions to 
you know, as far as city resources, state resources, stuff like that, but you don't yeah. create kind of these national things well, I mean, about treaties and stuff like that. The thing is, we had a referendum to join the European Union, so we should probably have a referendum to get out of the European Union. I think it's historical precedent. Just to say yes or no, then? Do you think that that's a smart idea to well, be like, yes I mean, or no, stay or leave? We, we no, it's too winning. It's way too complex. In Britain, we've different. The, the big questions are always put to referenda. Once you... And well, and again, well, see where it ends you up, I guess. But yeah. well, that's, you know, a, that's a funny thing with democracy, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. hell, I mean, over here, you know, we still have Trump and stuff like that. But you know, you open these things up to just a yes or no vote. When these treaties were okay, you want to enter into European Union, okay? Things have to happen, and that will be on the political side. Leaving is just well. Now we have these treaties. We have all these things. These. How are we going to deal with it? And so that was just a stupidity. Well, the, the, the thing matter. is, James, the the, um, the referendum to join the European Union. Uh, look, I don't know, but I I should imagine that there was probably um, a lot of talk around the pros and cons. Yeah. Okay, there was nothing like that with this referendum. No, 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 it was like just that. it was just hot air. It's like that you know the the conservatives with their big bus saying, you know, the NHS will save. Three hundred and fifty yeah. million, uh, million we, we pounds. We should say the Leave campaign because the Conservatives well, officially the, campaigned to remain, but uh, you know, w- yeah. with one foot in. Okay, the Leave. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. no, you're absolutely yeah, yeah. right. The Leave campaign, three hundred and fifty million quid a week. Yeah, huh? which was just a, a barefaced lie, and they got it's censured just, by the statistics authorities. So you can't keep saying this because it's not true. But they carried on. And they carried on doing it. Boris and that's what and that's what swung the vote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, and well, now we're seeing the effectiveness of lies and just saying no, that's not true. What they're saying sometimes. When there is bold fact, say, yeah. no, nah, it's a lot of fake news. Yeah. Yeah. Or now it's, no, oh, we yeah. will do this for you, we promise. We're in a post-truth era no, where everything's fucking relative. This, these tax cuts <laughs> will not add anything to the deficit. No, the, even the most conservative, even the most conservative right-wing think tank economic, yeah. economists say, we will add at least half a billion dollars to the uh, deficit with this tax cut. So, you know, lying. Yeah. It's, well, and also the point that this is a non-binding referendum. Like the government didn't have to then act on it and take this decision to do it, right. but it, it didn't have a legal precedent. This right. is this. I mean, we've said this several times in this podcast thing, but this is a purely result of the Conservatives being unable to keep the house in order. It mm. was infighting yeah. and bickering that gave lunatics like Nigel Farage and the UK Independence Party a platform to spread misinformation, mm. to, um, to to tell thinly veiled um, xenophobia um, to, on a national stage and give it the same import as leaders of the established political parties. And then, you know, what you end up with is little England going, Nigel's making a good point, they are taking my jobs. In fact, I heard someone speak in Arabic on the bus the other day. There's a great story about how um, this English bloke was in Wales and Cardiff on the bus and he saw a woman in a hijab talking a different language into her phone and he went, hey, in the UK we speak English. And this Welsh woman turns around and goes, he's speaking Welsh, darling. (laughs) 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 It shows you kind of the level of education we're talking about and ignorance, you know. yeah. But it's, uh, I mean, it's just a phenomenal mistake, and uh, you know, the European Union has said time and time again, there's, there's still time to change it. You can stop it if you want. Yeah. You know, I, I just think there's a whole that whole, you know, what a loose face. And like, I mean, can you imagine if, if if suddenly the Conservatives basically said, you know, we just walking away from the table, there'd be there'd be riots in the UK. Seriously, I mean, people would. Well, there would be riots, but then the, you know, there's an argument saying that. The government needs to resign and and do it because it doesn't have a popular mandate anymore. It yeah. lost that in the election. Yeah. Um, it's refusing to debate sensibly. But the, what's the strategy for negotiation? We go to the European Union and say, 
uh, we want to talk about trade deals and say, right, fine, but first we need to sort out the divorce bill, we need to sort out the issue of European citizens in the UK afterwards, and we need to sort and out the, the land border. border with the island border. Yeah. So our strategy for the uh, for the divorce bill is, we'll give you nothing. And they go, no, it's 60 billion. And we go, 10 billion. And they go, 60 billion. We go, 20 billion. They go, 60 billion. And we go, 57 billion. And the European Union is fine, sold, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we're walking away, David Davis grinning like an absolute moron, going, we made a deal. So, okay. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. yeah. Um, I think you fired up James more than yourself there, Victor. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, um, it's been a, an interesting year for us, I think, in, um, uh, in uh, financial technology and the capital markets. I, I, I genuinely think that next year, just judging by all the excitement around blockchain, I think blockchain is definitely going to be the, uh, 2018 is definitely going to be the year where we're going to see live um, uh, implementations of blockchain across a number of different... I wrote an article about, I think it was four or five specific things are supposed to go into effect 2018 so we can judge the waters to see yeah. if those are effective and successful. Maybe yeah. there's a use case, you know, a stronger yeah. use case going forward. Yeah. If not, then maybe it dampens some of the the uh, hype. Yeah, but I also think as well that um, the whole, um, you know, that kind of the Me Too mentality with uh, with blockchain and the R3 consortium and that sort of thing and, and how so many capital markets firms got involved a little bit like the uh, that notion of um, what do they call it um, um, FOMO, fear of missing yeah. out. Yeah. Um, and you kind of that's a that's like a Facebook Victor's phenomenon, hip right? With the, the young <laughs> <kid> term there, <laughs> like. Yeah. So um, you know, I just think a lot of it was just oh, everybody else doing it. Boy, I get better get involved. Yeah. And I just think so many people have put so much money into blockchain, and they're just not going to get a return on that investment. It's nice we're starting to see a few more sober analyses coming out, like the Optimus, Optimus, Optimus? Optimus, Optimus, yeah. Um, They did a great report, just soberly analysing what it is and what it isn't. The Investment Association has a buy-side perspective coming out very shortly on um, the buy-side's view of how it's possible to, which will be a very sober analysis, Mm. um, and various other consultancies. So some of the hot areas left the room, I think it's... Um, yeah. yeah. And judging by even like our, I like to think that our events serve as kind of a, a litmus test or whatever barometer as to where we're at. Blockchain wasn't brought, there was one panel one and then panel. really no one else was talking about it as much yeah. as Post yeah. Waters, 2000, you say 2016, where it was everybody wanted to talk about it. Right. People yeah. are just... But people want the details now, they want the technical meets. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they don't want to talk about blockchain as a concept and we'll say, right, fine, okay, but specifically what's going to happen here. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Mm. I think we've had a good discussion here. Mm. Yeah. Um, nice I've used up all my words for the day. So I'm just, gonna, I'm just going to sit in the corner and keep quiet. It's Sounds good. seven-hour flight ahead of you. Kick your back. <laughs> kick your back. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Victor, for joining us. Uh, next week will be episode 100. We're going to bring uh, Dandy Francesco, who really created this thing, back on. Now that he's suffering over on risk, you know, just uh, bring him back to the good guys. We say we're gonna do it. I think we're gonna go say, "Dad, are you ready?" He goes, "Can't do it." Yeah, just, yeah, because, yeah. yeah. It, it's possible just as James and me uh, talking, and then we'll have we're Amelia. Talk about Bitcoin futures again, because that's what he's working on right Probably, now. Probably, so, yeah. Really? Uh, we'll have uh, episode one one. Will be with Amelia David, a reporter, and then we'll have a. Christmas uh, episode, or something. I don't know. Well, Are you allowed to say Christmas? Holiday episode, sure, yeah, sure. Um, and uh, then in New Year, uh, we'll be bringing back some more guests and stuff like that once people are back in their offices again. But uh, we've got a few lined up. Yeah, this should be good. Mm. Well, uh, this was enjoyable. Um, until next week, enjoy uh, the weekend. Thank you. Cheers.